Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. We are now exactly one week out from Election Day, but after spending the past several episodes of the Hell on High Water homestretch hustle, devoted to deep dives into the state of play ahead of these crucial, historic, and histrionic midterm elections, we thought you could use a breather, a moment of light amid the darkness, a shot of levity to cut through the unrelenting atmosphere of gloom and doom and fear and trembling that now pervades the national mood, at least among those who hope and pray that American democracy will emerge intact on the other side of November 8th. And who better to provide those chuckles and chortles, giggles and guffaws, titters and tee-hee-hees, than the pride of Kalamazoo, Michigan, high school math and tennis and mock trial prodigy, and the only Frederick W. Heil and Elise L. Heil Science Scholarship Fund honoree ever to appear on this podcast? That's right. It's the one and only Jordan Klepper. If you're remotely interested in the intersection of politics and comedy, you know Jordan Klepper from The Daily Show, which he joined back in 2014 after cutting his teeth doing improv at Second City in Chicago and at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. Klepper's role at The Daily Show was that of correspondent, a job made famous by the likes of Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, and John Oliver. And over the next three years, Klepper made an impression every bit as deep, impressive, and hilarious as they did by pioneering and perfecting a shtick that was tailor-made for the period during which he rose to prominence, traveling to Donald Trump's campaign rallies and interviewing Trump's MAGA minions outside, asking them straightforward questions that inevitably tied them up in knots, a.k.a. giving them just enough rope to hang themselves with. In 2017, Klepper hosted his first Daily Show special, Jordan Klepper Solves Guns, which premiered on Comedy Central in June of 2017, and that was followed shortly by a new show for the network, The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, which ran for a year, followed by a new documentary comedy series in 2019 called simply Klepper. Later that year, Jordan returned to The Daily Show as a contributor and launched a podcast with former Ohio governor John Kasich called Kasich and Klepper. Last week, however, Klepper was handed a gig that vastly overshadowed all of these endeavors when we at Showtime's The Circus brought him on as a guest host for our episode that debuted on Sunday night, focusing on the all-important Pennsylvania Senate race and featuring Klepper interviewing former Republican Congressman Lou Barletta, who finished second, imagine that, imagine finishing second to Doug Mastriano earlier this year in the GOP gubernatorial primary, and interviewing also Democratic Senator Bob Casey, as well as a scene that we played in the episode from Klepper's latest project, a monthly live ensemble comedy production in Brooklyn entitled, ever so aptly for 2022, Shit Show, in which Klepper took on the much-discussed and potentially campaign-altering debate between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz in a way that managed to tell the truth about Fetterman's performance, that it wasn't great, place that performance, however, in the proper context and also take down both Donald Trump and Joe Biden in one fell swoop. Here, we heard Klepper on the podcast explaining how that joke came together. He did do poorly. And so you need to address the fact that he did poorly and not just go in on Oz being slick in the way that he is. But secondly, yes, I don't want to be ableist. I don't want to make fun of somebody because they are uh, healing again. I'd like to say that particular joke, again, not to overanalyze it, it's some great work of comedy, but that particular joke, I think in a moment you're like, well... 
where is some bullshit in there? You know what I think is, we already know the criticism of this is, oh my God, look at this guy. He can't finish a sentence. Um, uh, we know the right wing is going to say, this guy shouldn't be in office, what have you. And the bullshit to me is, you see what's happening in Georgia, and that argument is out the window. Herschel Walker, whatever he says and or does, doesn't matter, put him in office. All the criticism of Biden, he's in office. And Donald Trump is perhaps the most inarticulate person I've ever seen get on a debate stage. And he had four good years there. And so... In crafting a joke or a comment there, I think the target isn't the fact that Fetterman can't um, put a sentence together. The target is the fact that uh, we have the highest office in the land, uh, and we've been arguing to have people who have been inarticulate in that office for the last six years. That is just the start of the exploration of Jordan Klepper's comedic stylings, and in a way the history of modern political and media satire more broadly that we delved into in our insightful, delightful, and profoundly fun conversation the other day from Monty Python to Alan Partridge, from Chris Morris's largely unheralded one-season-only British series, The Day Today, which laid down the foundational DNA on which The Daily Show was built, to Jon Stewart himself and from Kurt Vonnegut to Bob Dylan, yes, Bob Dylan, whom Klepper cites as a comedic inspiration, and whose Highway 61 Revisited begins with what may be the least noticed and most deeply hilarious joke in the history of rock and roll lyricism. It's all here, a roadmap to the twisted, convoluted, but always highly entertaining mind of Jordan Klepper, who, we should note, has an all-new election special that debuts tonight, tonight, November 1st, on Comedy Central. The title of that special, in case you're looking to DVR the thing, is, and this is the whole thing, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents Jordan Klepper, Fingers the Midterms, America Unfollows Democracy. Now, hearing that title, some will think it's pretty filthy. Others will think it's pretty ominous. But for me, the main thing is that it's quite a mouthful and that next time Jordan ought to remember the timeless advice of Strunken White to, quote, omit needless words, which in this case would have left him with the essence of the title, Jordan Klepper Fingers the Midterms, which, come to think of it, is an even better title for a show than Hell on High Water. As America barrels into the midterm elections, there's just one question on my mind. Democracy. We still cool? If you knew you got fewer votes, you wouldn't concede. What is conceding? Yeah. It means accepting loss. No. no. Why? Is democracy fucked? We can be fucked tomorrow if the wrong thing happens. If there is a problem with this election, this country will go to civil war. How soon? Because I have an Airbnb rented in the Outer Banks. You were there January 6th. It was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. Birds chirping, police officers screaming. No. I didn't know we could bring a live band in to do Hell and High Water. Like, man, your, your backing band is fucking incredible. This is what, when you have $20 that Viacom is willing to give you to purchase some sort of royalty-free music, you go, <laughs> you Google Black Keys knockoff and you find it. What's that thing called? There's a thing that's called like something jingles, like, like, uh, there's... Oh. It's a hilarious thing. It's, uh, I think that's what we use. I mean, I think The Daily Show has, you get like a subscription to, yeah. it's like Jingle Puffs or something. Jingle Puffs or Jingle Box or some jingle yeah. thing like that where you can pay money to get, where you like put in like what you want it to sound like and then for free or for like a nickel, you get to use the sound that sounds like a Black Keys knockoff. That's the, that's the name of the game of The Daily Show. And so it's <laughs> half the time is us sitting in the edit being like, oh, we need something that feels Southwest. And so you're like, I don't know, Southwest or 
polka and <laughs> in the end it never's right and it's it only gets it's it's what is it? It's, uh, it's the uncanny valley of good taste. Where but but like you guys do almost it. sounds good, but it doesn't. But you guys do it for exactly the same reason we do it at the circus, which is um, to, be, to in order to be frugal and save money for our uh, for our corporate family at uh, CBS Viacom. Uh, Chris McCarthy, if you're listening, uh, all of us are pinching pennies, pinching nickels, pinching dimes to try to make the CBS Viacom Corporation that much more viable and solvent in the future year. So just look, don't look at the Daily Show budget or at the circus budget, please. Thank you very much. We're doing everything we can to keep it as cheap as possible. Hyman, I know your lies. I know you guys pay for fancy music. This... I'm, I'm certain I'm certain that we didn't pay you to come on the show this week, though, right? We're not paying you for that, are we? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, I, yeah, boy, I, when, when that conversation happened with my agents, I was, I was shocked. But I guess, you know, is it news? Can you put it under the banner of news, which is mean you, you, you rake people over the coals for a week's worth of work? Is that, that news, right? That's, yes. It's, you're, doing your, you're serving the public, Jordan, not your, your comedy thing you do. The comedy stylings of Jordan Klepper are, are amusing, they're amusing. They're, friv- they're lovely tri- triflings, frivolities, the things that help us get through a bleak and unforgiving world. But it's not enlightening. It's not informing. That's what we do. And now we brought you across the line into the realm where you'll be taken, I'm doing air quotes now, seriously. Capital okay. Thank S, you. seriously. Thank seriously. you. I finally have the legitimacy I've been begging for. You've given it to me. I've done my community services. It's as if I've been at a soup kitchen for the past week. Well, I would say, uh, but before we get to the way, Jordan Klepper's here, which is awesome, um, and we're referring to the fact that um, that on Sunday, um, Klepper has been on as a guest host on on The Circus, the show I make for Showtime, and we had a great week with him. We're going to talk about what we did with him and, and what we covered, which was the Pennsylvania Senate race. But I will say, when it comes to community service and attempts at respectability, Jordan, um, the podcast you made with uh, with John Kasich is that still happening? Does that still exist? Is that an extant thing, or is it now done? I we I think we we've we are finished with the podcast now. Okay, that's yes. breaking news right now. The Klepper Kasich podcast is dead. Uh, to all to the massive following that you once had that you built up in that period of time, we can we can go out and uh, I'm going to deliver hand delivered notices all over uh, all over New York and Columbus to let people know that that thing's done. <laughs> Th- thank you. Please go out and tell everybody. We had a, a small fan base, but a lovely one. And then you came on and you started some shit and. And look at us now. Now I have to do a podcast with you. I can't believe how far I've fallen. Right. Well, I started some shit as in as in I said things that you were thinking. That John Kasich is a is a is a lovely man. I've I've covered him for a long time. I like John Kasich a lot. He's a version of what Republicans used to be. A lot of Republicans used to be like, but they aren't anymore. If the rest of the Republican Party was only John Kasich today, or even was mostly, or even if there was a substantial faction like John Kasich. We'd be still having normal party arguments about, you know, more spending, less spending, more taxes, less taxes, you know, intervention around the world, non-intervention, as opposed to American democracy, is it doomed, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, and he wasn't willing to admit, he wasn't willing to sort of say, yeah, my party has kind of gone off the deep end. And that struck me as a little weird. It's a funny line. I, I would say where I'd push back on that a little bit, as I, I do think you are right, and that was part of even with that podcast, it was good to engage with him. It was it was actually refreshing to have conversations about those things and to hear from somebody that, that quite, quite frankly, when it came to like putting the Republican Party in the, the rear view and endorsing Biden, I was like, oh, if we need to have more conversations with people who are willing to walk the walk when it comes to something like that. Right. And then to talk to him about more pure conservative politics, frankly, I haven't had those conversations in such a long time. And it was refreshing to hear somebody's take on all of that. We did get into it. And I, I would say he, he was quick to to put down what the Republican Party 
has been doing for the last few years. Totally. And, and there were he has no friends over in that party right there, and I think totally. that's a very admirable place. But where we did get into butting heads was a little bit of both siderism at times, where it felt like you'd compare the extremes of both. And I think the Republican Party he had a, a real disgust for, but I often felt like. On, on the left, you couldn't quite find that same comparable thing. And then when we talked about the people trying to bring down democracy, it seemed like it was coming from one direction. Yeah, you know, we got into it a couple weeks ago when we had when we focused on Marjorie Taylor Greene on the circus. And, you know, I always hear these people, you know, on the, on the right who are saying, you know, you guys have your AOC. The left has its AOC, you know, and she's just like, you. we all have our extremes. And you're like, I mean... Yes, both part, both sides have their extremes, and I would say that the left, that the Democratic Party has moved to the left, just as the Republican Party has moved to the right. But the Republican Party has moved way further to the right than the Democratic Party has moved to the left. And if you want to compare AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene, you don't have to like AOC, but she's not, you know, <laughs> she's not a conspiracy theorist. She doesn't believe in QAnon. She doesn't think the, the, the elections, uh, the, she's not an election denier. She's not an insurrectionist. She's not someone who believes in Jewish space lasers. You know, she's not, you know, she's not batshit crazy. And so I just don't see, I, yes, they're both the extremes and both parties have extremes, but the extremes are really different at these days. And then I mean, gotta, it, it does make me laugh when, yeah, when I, I've heard the AOC connection to Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, oh, the left's Marjorie Taylor Greene is AOC. And it's like, what do you dislike about AOC? Oh, the Green New Deal. It's like, oh, you dislike that she's, <laughs> <laughs> attempting to save the planet. And the, right. we, we can debate the extremes of that, but it, it feels as if a person whose extreme view is just, can we, can we take some extreme measures to save a global catastrophe? Eh, it is different than Jewish space lasers and let's take down democracy. Now, I will say, I had to go back to the clip that I played at the very top of the show because I didn't really say what it is. And I want to be really clear about it because we're going to talk about it a few times in this podcast um, and in some detail. Jordan has a special. It's coming out on Tuesday, the, the day this podcast appears. So if you're listening to this the morning that it drops, and I know all you eager Hell and High Water fans, like as soon as it drops, you're up at like four in the morning waiting for that thing to drop. And you listen to it over your cornflakes, your sugar pops, your whatever bre breakfast thing normal people eat. I haven't, don't really do that, but okay. Oatmeal. So. These are, this is an oatmeal crew. I can feel it. They're good fiber. It's good for the tummy. Uh, you that's know, what I, I have, imagine. I always go back to, uh, I always go back to when it comes to breakfast, Jordan. I, I, you can never say this enough. You can never say it enough that one of the great, uh, one of the great Hunter Thompson quotes ever uh, in The Great Shark Hunt, uh, I will quote at, at in toto, breakfast, the only meal of the day that I tend to view with the same kind of traditionalized reverence that most people associate with lunch and dinner. I like to eat breakfast alone and almost never before noon. Anybody with a terminally jangled lifestyle needs at least one psychic anchor every 24 hours and mine is breakfast in Hong Kong, Dallas or at home. And regardless of whether or not I've been dipped to bed, Breakfast is a personal ritual that can only be properly observed alone in a spirit of genuine excess. The food factor should always be massive. Four Bloody Marys, two grapefruits, a pot of coffee, Rangoon crepes, a half pound of either sausage, bacon, or corned beef hash with diced chilies, a Spanish omelet or eggs benedict, a quart of milk, a chopped lemon for random seasoning, and something like a slice of key lime pie, two margaritas, and six lines of the best cocaine for dessert. And there should also be two or three newspapers, all mail and messages, a telephone, a notebook for planning the next 24 hours, and at least one source of good music, all of which should be dealt with outside in the warmth of a hot sun, preferably stone naked. Um, you know, now <laughs> the I, smells, I, I, the smells that had to emanate from that man, I could only imagine. Yeah, did you? He's a you're a fan of his, right? You're uh, a hunter yeah, fan. A huge fan of hunters. Yes. Um, Have you ever eaten a breakfast like that? I have, boy, I haven't eaten one-tenth of that breakfast. Over the course of my life, I've maybe cut through about half of that breakfast. Uh, there's, so there's, there's elements. You know, perhaps Hunter was known to em embellish some of his own appetites. So yes. perhaps the, the sentiment within there of savoring life, enjoying the moment, 
feeding into a ritual uh, and having a paper and good music in the background, that is something I'd like to achieve. But the, the cocaine and the amount of citrus that he lays out, I, I could never get there. It's just too much cocaine um, from your point of view. To me, for me, it's a little too little. For When I'm, the circus is on the air, my thing is I just look at the key lime pie and the cocaine and then turn up both the key lime pie, two slices of key lime pie and a eight ball kind of for breakfast every morning. That gets me through for eight weeks. It's the only way to cover the news, huh? It's the only way. It's the only way, and you can tell from our coverage. Um, so the special, your special, yep. that appears t tonight, Tuesday night, on The Daily Show. Give me the full title because it's quite elaborate. It's exhausting. Here we go. It is, I believe, uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents Jordan Klepper, Fingers the Globe, America Unfollows Democracy. Fingers the midterms, I think, right? You're right. That's not even what it was. Let me do it again. I know, again. you, you fingered the globe. I mean, much <laughs> more, much greater ambition. <laughs> Apparently, Jordan's like, fingering the midterms wasn't enough fingering for you. Finger, fingers the globe was, the last one was a fingers the globe when we went to Hungary. Finger, we had, yeah, fingers the pulse is the series. I'm going to try it again. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents Jordan Klepper fingers the midterms. America unfollows democracy. Boom. And just to, for the for the sake of uh, of, of uh, clarity and and appropriateness, you you got the consent of the midterms before you fingered them, right? Of course. Yes, great. I've, yeah. I, I've been in a consensual relationship with the midterms for years now, so uh, we're in a good place. And, and it's it's uh it's you put a lot of work in this thing, right? You were like, yeah, as I remember, you were all over the country. We kept like either running into you uh, in airport uh, lobbies and or airport lounges, or hearing when we roll into a place that you guys had just been there. And there was always sort of a, the last assholes that came through here from some East Coast show, like trash the place, uh, you know, destroyed the, the room they were in. Are you guys going to do that? Like if you're a daily show, like those daily show guys are bad news. You go hold the circus. It could be even worse. There are elephants involved. What the fuck's happening? We just had, we just got clear of those guys. Please don't bring it to us again. So you were all over the place, right? We went all over. Yeah. I mean, that's often people are like, oh, when they see me show up at a place, I have people who will come up and be like, oh no, you're in my town now. Oh, <laughs> fuck. Ah, uh, something went wrong. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. There's some shit going down downtown. Did you not hear about it? So we went to we went to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona, and sort of. So we looked at those three places in covering uh, the midterms for this special uh, because there was shit going down, election denying all across the board, and and places to be, oath keepers to hang out with, ballot boxes to monitor. We covered it all. You weren't armed for any period of this, were you? I was not. I was definitely with people who were armed. That the Oath Keepers <laughs> told me they were armed. Oh. I went to an Oath Keeper meeting, and I made the comment about, you know, different perspective there. In an empty church at 7 o'clock, they were like, don't you feel safer because we're all armed? And I counted out the eight people in the room and said, you don't need eight guns. And their response was, they laughed with my assumption that they only had one gun each. And so... I, guess what? We were safe that day. Now, were they being paranoid? Perhaps you didn't need, let's say, 16 guns in a, a small church like that. Yeah. But I was told that I should feel safer. You, you guys didn't take bodyguards, did you? Or did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm always traveling. Oh, I, I'd usually travel with two to, two to four security <laughs> guards. Yeah. Have, have two or four heavily armed men at all times, like even when you go to like Cancun for, uh, for a spring break, that kind of thing? <laughs> yes. I mean, this is... Especially then. I, I always Cancun. I mean, I take off the shirt and people are going to run at me. So you just know that. Well, we're going to talk about that a little later on the podcast. Um, uh, and we're going to talk about the special a little later in the podcast. But I first want um, to focus on last week when 
you came with us on the road uh, for the circus. Not that far. We, we were we were not that far flung, unlike your special, unlike some episodes of our show. We stuck relatively close to home because the biggest story in politics last week was the long-awaited, much-anticipated, much-hyped, some in some quarters much-feared uh, debate between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate race. And... Um, it did not disappoint. I would say a lot of debates, like, get, you get built up, you know, that, oh, this is going to really change everything, and then it's kind of a damp squib, I guess is the phrase some people use. This one was not a damp squib. Um, what did you make of it? I, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's amazing starting the week knowing that it's probably going to be focused on that specific debate. And I've watched a lot of debates, and more often than not, you forget that debate the next day. But this was memorable. And we talk a lot about it, and we talked about it all this week. The fact that Fetterman had a stroke was the big question mark. How was he going to handle it? People hadn't seen him publicly, uh, especially not in a format like that. And immediately you saw that this format did not suit John Fetterman. Um, he struggled. It was it was pretty clear that he struggled. And, and Oz looked, from my perspective, good, slick, was able to handle that format. He's a TV guy. He can go in and out of it all. And, and that thing ended with a lot of question marks from the, the, the Democratic viewpoint as to whether Fetterman was going to, one, maintain that lead in the polls, and two, maintain the confidence in the, the voters. And I think that was, that was a big question post-debate. Such a tricky thing to cover when there's a health-related uh, thing in a, in a campaign because, you know, the, the, the campaigns and the candidates who are seeking to lead us, uh, the, their, their voters, their states, their, their, the country, their, their congressional districts, whatever it is, you know, they owe us, you know, but voters have a right to ask questions, especially about people's fitness for office, and fitness includes their health. It just does. And that doesn't mean that they have to be a thousand percent disclosed about everything, although I would say for when people, someone's running for president, you have to pretty much go totally open, open kimono if you're going to have that kind of power invested in you, but you are into a thing like this. It's complicated. Like a stroke is a complicated thing. I'm not an expert, but I've read enough to know that, you know, there's a, there's lots of people who have, have, have speech issues, who have hearing issues, who have other kinds of issues that have nothing to do with cognition. Um, I've read enough to know that. I also know that there are some people who have cognitive problems after, after strokes and, and telling the difference to an average voter, not, not easy to do. And they're hearing it through the normal. Now they hear it. Also, you lay on, on top of the experts, you lay on the right wing and the left wing filters on top of it, trying to convince you one way or the other, man, I, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky for people who cover it. It's people and really tricky. I think for people who vote on it, what am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to think? Are my eyes even telling me the truth? Um, you know, it's hard. You empathize with somebody going through that, of course, but I do think that difficulty, I, I, I wish, one, I wish America was better at having nuanced conversations because we should be able to be both empathetic towards somebody going through something difficult, to see that both as a heroic act, to watch somebody go through this this difficult space and to come out in front of all these people uh, is a very impressive thing. And yet, like you said, he's running for a very important position. I wish we could be more critical of people's health, of people's age. I think that's a valid conversation that we need to have about Joe Biden. I think people's religion, I wish we could be much more open about the ways in which that affects policy for people in power. And yet, because these conversations often devolve into these little snippets that you hear and then are used and wielded back and forth on the farther left and farther right spaces, uh, you almost tread into it either not covering it because you know it could get wound up um, or cover it in such an extreme manner that it feels insincere. So I'll, I'm going to play two bites from the debate of Fetterman. And a lot of these got played a lot uh, last week. 
Um, I would say that, you know, at least right after the debate, there was a tendency of local news to be kind of wary about making any kind of judgment. And local news probably matters more than national news in, in Pennsylvania, where there's almost no undecided voters left. And the ones who are undecided are not like MSNBC or Fox News junkies. There are people who are probably not really paying that much attention to news if you don't know who you're voting for between these two people. So local news was kind of afraid to, 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 to offer judgment. National news, you know, you had a lot of that partisan thing uh, where Democrats, uh, the left-leaning media picked out the, the the hits that Fetterman got in on Oz, the, and Oz's big kind of flub on abortion. Uh, and then the right just hammered on the the worst of the things that were Fetterman sounded worse. I'm going to play two of them, one that the left liked to play, one that the right liked to play. And then I just want to talk about what you heard, because you're obviously not a person of the right, nor am I. But I think, you know, there is some gr ground reality where, like, people who were, I mean, again, I heard from a lot of Democrats watching this debate who are not people on the right who were watching the debate going, Boo. So let's just listen to these two clips here. Um, the first, uh, we'll play them right in a, right in a row. Um, uh, the first one features John Fetterman uh, talking about the way that Dr. Oz likes to tag Fetterman with being a buddy of Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, man of the left, you're a socialist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and Fetterman uh, takes that critique and the attempt to kind of yoke him to Bernie Sanders and uh, uses it to, to get in a, a nice clean hit on Dr. Oz. You know, he keeps talking about Bernie, Bernie Sanders. You know, three, year, three years ago, he was on his show and he hugged him and he said, I love this guy. You know what? Why don't you pretend that you, you live in Vermont instead of Pennsylvania and run against Bernie Sanders? Because all you can do is talk about Bernie Sanders because my truth is, is that healthcare is a basic fundamental right. And I believe in expanding that. And I believe about supporting fighting for healthcare, the kind of healthcare that saved my life. Sounds pretty good there. Um, although there is that weird moment where he say, after he says, you know, mentions Sanders twice, and then he says, all of a sudden he just sharply turns to, because my truth is that healthcare is, there's just a funny little thing there. It's not, is it, it's not, I, I'm not attacking him for it. It's not disqualifying, but it's a funny, there's a moment there where you're like, huh, that's not like normally how John Fetterman speaks, right? Yeah, you can feel him searching for some of the words there. I think what does come across is immediately he's brought up Bernie Sanders, he's linked Dr. Oz and the questions people have about his flip-flopping positions and the accusations of fraud uh, mm -hmm. and insincerity with him comes across there. So I, I think he, he lands his point across. He points out that he's he's struggling and relies on strong uh, health care. I think like, I do think that was a, a strong-ish moment for him again yeah. but if you're hearing that through the lens of i'm looking for steadiness and strength you don't hear that in perhaps the performance of that like i say on the on the left you had you know in, in le leftish media you basically had two things you heard over and over again where uh fetterman said let's talk about the elephant in the room i'm gonna talk about my stroke what you didn't hear usually was the fact that he started the first thing out of his mouth was good night rather than uh you know which is not i think he meant maybe he meant to say good evening again i'm not mocking him i'm just saying it's like it's a he was very nervous you could tell at the beginning sure. of the debate too you know and he i, I understand it I, I i was at a bakery two days ago and outside the bakery there was a, a lovely older pair who I believe were in a poetry workshop together. They were talking about literally the power of words and they brought up this debate and I was listening and she was focused on how it started, which was the word good night. Right. And she said, it was fascinating. And these, these, are, these are poets looking at words. They're like, the, she's like, he's not incorrect. Good night and good evening mean the same thing. Yes. Uh, 
but the little shift between night and evening is colloquially the the end of something uh, and 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 a greeting. And I think like there is something about like there there is no untruth in what he said. Uh, right. It's not a mistake, but it's a slight miss of of what the intention is there. And I think that. It, it didn't feel like he was saying flipping yes and no throughout this debate, but it did feel like those small little moments that are technically perhaps correct did feel kind of off, and you were reminded of that throughout the debate. Right, and they're awkward, and so you hear them, and they sound funny on your ear. And so, again, if you're, a, if you're just a normal person, one of two things happens, I think. Then one, you either say, he's not right. Something's wrong with him. Or you say... I already knew that he's having he's recovering from his stroke and and he actually sounds pretty good and he's going to keep getting better. I mean, this is just part of the process. Some people it makes them kind of root for him and some people kind of get get disquieted by it. Here's the here's the other clip though that and this was the clip where like my text blew up uh, again mostly from Democrats who were worried about what would happen in this debate. This is a, a, a there's a discussion going on about Fetterman position on fracking, a big, a big issue in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and well, you'll hear what happened here when the moderator presses him on his position here. I do want to clarify something. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking, but there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking and I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. So I'm sorry for anybody who, who feels like note pointing out that that was a, an awkward, painful thing to kind of witness who thinks that's a partisan attack and that we're not showing sympathy for John Fetterman. I have a lot of sympathy for John Fetterman, but you couldn't watch that and think that, you know, that was the way he, he wouldn't have addressed, he would that's not what he would have sounded like back in April. And it's, and it's, and for a lot of voters, like some of that pause, the beginning Jordan is like, He's got to read, it's on closed captions, right? So there's a pause after the question. He even paused, you know, to read the question when he was asked about whether he wanted the, whether it was for the, the, the Eagles or the Steelers. He's a lifelong Steelers fan. There was a long pause. And then he says, oh, of course, the Steelers. You know, that, it's just, it's a minute. It takes him a little minute to read, the, to read the closed captioning. But the combination of that pause and some of the halting thing, I just don't know an honest Democrat who's pulling like who thinks the whole future democracy rests on this race and wants Fetterman to win. There wasn't one of them who wasn't kind of going, oh, that was not good. <laughs> well, I mean, also that, give me one Democrat in Pennsylvania who has ever answered that question cleanly on television. <laughs> Is, 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 is there a sound clip anywhere on the internet where a Democrat has cleanly landed that question? The fracking that, question, yeah. He, he's dealing with uh, the after effects of a stroke here, but he's a Democrat in Pennsylvania right. dealing with a contradictory uh, opinion on fracking, and he can't say he's against fracking. That, that, that to me was just sort of pure in that sense. So the question I have for you before I get to play, I'm going to play a little bit of, of you... Uh, of your reaction to the debate because we came in and shot with you. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. But just, just before that, here's my question. You know, not to get too inside baseball about it, but the debates are horrible in general, right? Here, state your position on a complex issue in one minute. Oh, and you, here, uh, Mr. Clapper, please, you have 15 seconds for a rebuttal. It's like there's moments in these debates under any circumstances where you want to like, like, stop, this is fucking ridiculous. 15 seconds? What, what, what is that, 15 seconds? I could barely like, like say what I had for breakfast this morning in 15 seconds, let alone address a complex issue like fracking or global its connections to climate change and, and, and the plight of the working class. There's a million things to say that you're not going to get in in a one-minute statement and a 15-second rebuttal. But here's this guy who's going to have to play by, who just accepted those debate rules. 
and knows that there's going to be some of that time is going to get eaten by the, the the closed captioning and the processing of that, right? I don't want you to go to pretend to be a campaign consultant here, but as you're sitting there, if you were if you were in Fetterman's family, would you have been like, it's a good idea to do this debate, or would you have been, maybe we should just not debate and sort of say, listen. I, I, you can, I have had a stroke and I'm recovering. The debate format does not, is not right for me, but I'll find other formats to express my points of view. I'm just not going to do this. I mean, what would you have wanted him to do if you were his brother? You don't debate. I think, I think you said it all. It's, it's not a good format. Uh, it's not a good format for anybody. The fact that you have to distill all of that information down to something uh, that's uh, memeable. You also know how people are going to use that debate, and it's a you are unprepared for that because of the stroke. Everyone knows you are dealing with the stroke. I think you are right. I think the I think you could come forward and say this is not something that I feel comfortable engaging in. Um, the fact that I have to be under a ticking clock and read closed captioning it doesn't let me articulate the issues. I want to articulate the issues. I want to engage in debate. Let me be more open in the interviews that I do on television. Uh, be allow more access to the the live uh, events that I'm holding. Like, I think there's a way that you 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 hold it. People, I think, are understanding of that to a degree. I know in Arizona, she's getting dinged for not standing up against Carrie Lake for debates. But I think in this situation, people would have understood. And frankly, I don't think <laughs> I think Donald Trump. Basically, when he was like, "I don't need, I, I, I don't need to do the things you think I need to do because that's what politics have always done." That rarely hurt him, and I think debates, debates are a thing of the past. And if you decide that they're no longer something that you need and the people don't need from you, I think people get on board. He's not going to win over that many more voters, and especially because of the situation that he was in, I think they would have been understanding. I'll say it again about Katie Hobbs out in Arizona. Um, I just don't understand if you're the Secretary of State and you're saying democracy's on the line and I'm, I'm, I'm going to run for governor against a, a conspiracy theory embracing uh, election denialist like Carrie Lake, and you're Katie Hobbs and you then won't debate? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just like, it's, it's almost, to my, in my mind, it just t- means, it, it just makes you feel like, not just that she's afraid, but also that, She's not taking, she's not serious about what she's saying, you know? Like, if you really think the fate of American democracy is on the line and that Arizona's going to overturn the rightful elections and, and this woman is approximate, you're running neck and neck with her, this is the woman who could go and do it. How can you be like, yeah, but I'm not going to debate her because I don't want to get down in the mud with the pigs because I'm just going to get dirty and the pig's going to like it, which is the, you know, the political axiom there. I'm like, fuck you. You want to save American democracy? Get dirty. And, and get in the mud with the pig. Like, it's a pretty big, you're making a pretty big claim about how important this is, and you're like, I got to keep my clothes clean. Like, give me a break. Well, we're starting to see what the new rules are because pigs are running. And <laughs> so how are we going to engage with these pigs? Uh, and that doesn't mean to be a pejorative. We're, we're playing off the axiom here. But I do think the fact that somebody has a conspiratorial thinking, denies an election, is, is no longer an oddity. It's, it's your opponent, and they're polling ahead of you. So you're going to have to figure out a way to engage with that. And, and in that situation, I do think she should debate. We're going to come back to the, to the, to the issues of American democracy in, later in the podcast when we talk more about your special, because that's really what your special, for all of its laughs, is really all about. It's just what a fucking crazy moment we were in. But, you know, Paul Mary said when we were in Arizona, she said, you know, you don't want to get pulled down the rabbit hole, you know, on these debates. But at this point, it's like that's where our politics are taking place. They're subterranean. There's holes being dug. They're, they're undermining the foundation of the house. And if, like, if you don't want to go down there with the rabbit, like, 
the rabbit's just going to, or the gophers and all the other creatures down there are just like brewing away and the house is going to collapse. So either you're going to go fight now in that hole or, or the house is going to collapse. That's it. You don't have a choice where you're like, we get to, I want to have this up here on the, on the rostrum. That's not how, that's not where our politics are right now. And if you want to insist that that's the only way you'll play it, I'm telling you that the house is going to be a giant hole in the ground fairly soon. It just makes me nuts that like, we're like, well, I don't want to go down there with the rabbit. Like, no, I'm too good for that. Like, yeah, you know, anyway, made this point. I won't belabor it. <laughs> Jordan, who knows, who understands that, that American politics has become a shit show, has started a new, uh, a new format for expressing that very directly. Uh, a monthly live uh, combination of stand-up comedy, improv, a panel discussion, a bunch of his friends from comedy, the comedy world, performers, writers, other people, occasionally even a semi-serious and very unfunny person like me who I, I was got to do the first one. Uh, last week, the second one took place uh, in Gowanus, Brooklyn at the Bell House. Uh, the second special guest, so to speak, special by which you mean un really like the boring one on stage. And again, I was that one in the first thing, so I can say that. Neil Katyal got to be uh, the, the, the earnest uh, one uh, last week. It was, again, really funny. Anybody who's in New York and has a chance or is going to be in town, look for the shit show and go out to Gowanus because Jordan runs a pretty, and his, and his crew run a pretty fun night there at the Bell House. But we got to hear you do a little stand-up uh, at the very beginning and talk about this Senate uh, the Senate race, the Pennsylvania one that we put in the circus. And this clip actually makes air, I believe. Actually made air, and I don't know if it's ever in our show, but I think it might <laughs> make air. Uh, a joke that you tell that gets right into that Trump space. Uh, let's play that. Because Oz, I would say Oz, he avoided questions on China. He noodled his way around the abortion topic. Uh, he's slick, which makes sense because he's 95% snake oil. <laughs> <laughs> but Fetterman... If we're being honest, Fetterman struggled last night. He had a hard time, he had a hard time making complete sentences, difficult time communicating, and if I looked at him, I don't see him on the Senate floor. The Oval Office, maybe, yes. <laughs> I spent six years watching people with those exact same qualities live in that Oval Office. It's funny and true. And I guess the, the way I want to wrap this up in a bow is just, to get you to talk a little bit about what you think in a world where like the audience is fragmented, the audience is partisan, you, you know who you're going to get in Brooklyn. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but you know who you're going to get in Brooklyn. Not a lot of Oz fans. Uh, most people who, want, who would like to see Fetterman win want to see Democrats stay in control of the Senate. Also in a world that where speech codes, in, informal speech codes govern are every move now. Cancel culture is what it is. This is an issue that's, that's which Fetterman Stroke has generated heated debates about ableism and disableism and all kinds of other words I, I won't say on this on the air here because I'll get canceled. How do you thread the needle there? Like you're doing political comedy at a time when there's partisans on one side who want to tell you what to say and what you can't say. And there's, there's wokeists who are not even a part of, member of their own political party who want to like cancel anybody who says anything that, that is unapproved speech that, that, in some cases, like, might express a really vital truth. How do you do what you do? Like, I want to tell the truth and I want to be funny, and there's a lot of people trying to stop you from doing those two things. <laughs> well, I'm not over-worried about the cancel world. I, I do think you, ha you have a responsibility to have a microphone in front of you, a camera in front of you, to be pretty clear with what you say. Now, that being said, that particular night, those are fine jokes. I was happy to tell those jokes. It, it was a little bit... That's a, that's a weird line to walk because I will say Fetterman is a good example of someone who is, yes, it's an audience, it's in a room who doesn't want to hear that Fetterman did poorly, but he did do poorly. 
And so you need to address the fact that he did poorly and not just go in on Oz being slick in the way that he is. But secondly, yes, I don't want to be ableist. I don't want to make fun of somebody because they are uh, healing again. I'd like to say that particular joke, again, not to overanalyze it, it's some great work of comedy, but that particular joke, I think in a moment you're like, well, where is some bullshit in there? You know what I think is, we already know the criticism of this is, oh my God, look at this guy, he can't finish a sentence. Um, uh, we know the right wing is gonna say, this guy shouldn't be in office, what have you. And the bullshit to me is, you see what's happening in Georgia, and that argument is out the window. Herschel Walker, whatever he says and or does, doesn't matter, put him in office. All the criticism of Biden, he's in office, and Donald Trump is perhaps the most inarticulate person I've ever seen get on a debate stage, and he had four good years there. And so, in crafting a joke or a comment there, I think the target isn't the fact that Fetterman can't um, put a sentence together. The target is the fact that uh, we have the highest office in the land uh, and we've been arguing to have people who have been inarticulate in that office for the last six years. So so I think you, I think you have to walk through it with intention. Intention is always the place you start from. That was always the case at The Daily Show. It was like, what do you think? What do you believe? If you follow through your intention, then you're not always gonna walk that uh, line correctly, but hopefully you know why you're doing it and not just looking for the the quick guttural reaction. I know we don't wanna overanalyze it, and I'm gonna go to break in a second, but it's like, uh, there's a kind of overanalyze this particular joke, but there is a kind of like formula perfection to it, which is to, you've acknowledged a hard truth in that joke, which is Fetterman had a bad night. And then you do something that kind of is really going to push your audience's buttons. I don't see him on the Senate floor. And like, oh, what, what, Jordan, huh? And then the old reliable thing, go back and like trash Donald Trump, which, you know, gives a, ah, oh, just, a, you know, he's taking a shot at Trump. But I'm not, I'm not being demeaning. I think it's a perfect, there's a perfect equi balance and perfect equipoise there where people go, oh, okay. Like there's truth in it. <laughs> there's truth in it. I got a little scared there for a minute. And then I got, I got my sense of relief and my orgiastic kind of, you know, I got fingered basically. You got fingered. Not to, 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 to doubly overanalyze a mediocre joke. What was funny about that too, when I was bouncing off my buddy Seth, yeah. Uh, beforehand, Seth Weiberg is a co-producer on the show. Yeah. Uh, that last turn where you make fun of Trump, which is the thing that gets him every time, the question yeah. is like, oh, but they're going to think you're making fun of Biden. And you're like, oh, right. And you're like, well, I am. I mean, I do think it is true. And the, so even the tag there, this is you so little bit. Years. It's six, six years. years. And that's yeah. to let them know Trump is in with the Biden thing, which is, which is again, maybe that's a cowardly move. But as a comedian, you're like, okay. But the Oval Office, maybe, because the audience is like, oh, yes, but wait a minute, Biden. Are you saying Biden's too old? <laughs> You're like, no, no, six years. So he is too old, perhaps, for that position and are inarticulate. But also remember Trump, he's also shit, too. And then the audience can, okay, good. That we all agree on. <laughs> it's, it's a weird path. It's amazing that people, I'll say what's a weird path. It's amazing that people get paid so much money to focus on such uh, things like you say, I know what you, you're, you're incredibly, you're like a, you look at Jordan, you're like, man, he's a wealthy, wealthy man. He's like a celebrity, superstar celebrity, all this money, just, just the bling is like just dripping off him. And you're like, he gets paid that much money for like making these little itty bitty funnies, like these little jokes. Your parents must be like, how did you pull that off? They were like, this, you're so rich. We're so impressed with you. You really figured it out. Improv, to all the kids out there, get into improv. It's where the money is. Right. It's a, forget about investment banking. It's the other I word. All right, we're going to take a quick break uh, here. It's uh, time for that. Uh, take a little breather on Hell and I Water, and we'll return with more of the inimitable Jordan Klepper, who's special. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents Jordan Klepper. Fingers, fingers the midterms. Fingers the midterms. 
don't know what that means. Jordan Klepper fingers the midterms. America unfollows democracy. Unfortunately, I know what that means. It premieres tonight, November 1st, on Comedy Central. We'll be right back. And we are back with Jordan Klepper here on Hell and High Water. You know, The Daily Show has produced some very, very large uh, successes and very large talents. You know, there's a pantheon and there are people who look around. I have no ability to judge these things. There's people who look at the current array of people who are known for The Daily Show and they think, you know, Klepper is next. John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver. Uh, you know, these are some, Samantha B. these are some big names, big shoes. And people go, Klepper. He's the next giant to come striding. Oh, Trevor Noah, let's not forget him. Klepper's the next giant to come striding out of the Daily Show studios like a colossus on the cultural stage. And you, it all started, it all started, according to you, with some off-color humor from a British comedy troupe. Your father was a woman. Who was he? He was a centurion in the Jerusalem garrisons. Really? What was his name? Nautius Maximus. <laughs> Centurion, do you have anyone of that name in the garrison? Well, no, sir. Well, you sound very sure. Have you checked? Well, no, sir. Um, I think it's a joke, sir. Like Silius uh, Sodus or Biggest Digger, sir. What's so uh, funny about Biggest Dickers? Well, it's a joke name, sir. I have a very great friend in Rome called Biggest Dickers. <coughs> Silence! What is all this insolence? You will find yourself in gladiator school very quickly with rotten behavior like that. Can I go now, sir? <coughs> Wait, your Biggest Dickers hears of this. I see you. It's 1979, and Life of Brian comes out by Monty Python. And you're, 1979, you're how old? I'm being born. You're being born, right? Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you're born in '79 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, right? Yes. Um, a state uh, full of amazing things. Michigan. My mother was from the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, and uh, you know, pasties. People don't know anything about pasties, but if you were from the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, snowmobiles and pasties, and <laughs> it's such a glorious state. Also, the Michigan militia. Like, it's a weird state, you know? Yeah. Right. Very weird. Um, so when did you discover life? Or, like Monty Python, you have said to me, was like part of what first motivated you. Like, I'm going to be, I want to do this. When did you first discover like Life of Brian? I was old enough. I was in high school by 1979. So I like Life of Brian. I love Life of Brian, but we were watching that. I was a freshman in high school. So that was like right down the strike zone. I saw them at the Hollywood Bowl when they did that Whoa. concert. I was yeah. there. Okay. So I'm just saying. I find them as the... As a kid who's just a comedy fan growing up, who had Jim Carrey posters in his room, obsessed about it. I go to college, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I joined an improv troupe because I saw Whose Line Is It Anyway, and it was so much freaking fun that I was like, I like doing this, I'll do some theater stuff. And then I go overseas for foreign study and uh, to England, where I start just getting surrounded by British comedy. And I knew a little bit of Monty Python, but I get into it over there and I freaking fall in love with Flying Circus. And it's just so funny and silly. And I liked sketch at the time, but Python was so weird, both smart and dumb at the same time. 
Uh, and also it feels kind of cool to know something that's outside of what all your friends kind of were talking about. Right. And then when I come back in, I, I just dive way into Flying Circus. And at that point, I'm doing sketch comedy in college. I'm way into it. And then I see Life of Brian. And to me, that's sort of the pinnacle of Python in the sense that uh, it's so silly and dumb in places, but incredibly smart. Status games, poking poking holes at those in charge. And the, the biggest thing is like a, a huge swing at religion, which at the time I think I'm also going through my yeah. atheist Richard sure. Dawkins phase. Sure. And I'm like, oh, that's how you fucking do it. Oh, that's, this is still so funny and people get it and they laugh. And, but these, these games that they're playing are games about bureaucracy. They're games about um, mm. the, uh, the ways in which people create religions around uh, uh, such a need for it. That, that whole scene where they like craft a religion off of the shoe that was left behind yes. with um, Graham Chapman's fleeing is just such a beautiful, hilarious articulation of like the BS in the birth of what humans need and how these uh, institutions are created. And I think it also feels cool to get that when you're like 20 and I'm like, oh, I get what they're doing there. Oh, they're doing it in such a funny way. Yeah, I want to do more of that. Uh, you were in college where? Kalamazoo College. Kalamazoo College. Wow. So, like, you grew up in Kalamazoo and just decided to, you're like, I gotta, gotta, don't wanna get too far away from Kalamazoo. Don't wanna get too far. I got a math scholarship. It, it allowed me to go to college uh, uh, at Lovely K, which is a liberal arts school, and you get to kind of be a big fish, small pond. So, I got to try everything, which was a godsend for me. And for anybody who doesn't know, I will say Kalamazoo, with, along with Ann Arbor, is like one of the liberal bastions of Michigan. It's like, that's, a, that's like a progressive community. There's like great record stores there. You could go and yeah. buy like all, it's like a, it's like a hipster town. Um, I had a great little newspaper there for a long time too, the Kalamazoo Gazette, I think. Kalamazoo Gazette, that's my whole family. Is always like my, my from editors to typefitters to my dad oh my God, uh, delivering really? papers. The Kalamazoo Gazette was a big part of the Klepper family. Amazing. You know, when uh, when I was at Northwestern, uh, we had this program for a journalism internship that you had to do if you were getting, if you were going through Medill. And one of the papers, it was called Teaching Newspaper, and one of the papers was the Kalamazoo Gazette. And it was one of the ones that people, like, competed to want to go to because people thought it was a great paper. Um, and, and it was like... You got sort of segregated in that in that in the academic sense. Like the people who were at the top got to go to like the Miami Herald and you know the bigger papers in the network. And Kalamazoo was always one that people wanted to get to, even though except in the winter where people were like, "Can I please go to Tucson?" You know, which is which is where I was. I was like, "I don't give a fuck about any of that. I want to go to the Tucson Citizen. There's weed down there and it's warm." It's like I don't give a fuck about whether it's any good. Kalamazoo? Are you high? <laughs> um, I can see you. So you're I'd not see- high. You're just you're drunk on micro brews and you're cold. That's yeah. what you are in Kalamazoo. I love when I ask people who come on the show and talk about comedy and I say, like, who, like, your inspirations and and the people who you looked up to and your list had a bunch of British people on it, including the whole Python thing. So that's that. And and obviously the ones that people don't know as well in this country, Steve Coogan, um, people know somewhat. Chris Morris, I think people don't know very much well at all. But those two guys were part of a, a really important uh, show. And it's a show that is important, I mean, because of, like, if you're a fan of The Daily Show under Jon Stewart and therefore and, and thereafter, you can go back and find the genetic code in that, in that show, very much in a show that, that Chris Morris made with Stephen Coogan as a, as a bit player who would come on every now and then in kind of a Jordan Klepperish, John Oliverish, uh, Stephen Colbertish role in the early days of The Daily Show. Uh, the show was called The Day Today. It was on BBC Two in night for one year, 1994. Uh, and Chris Morris is the, the is plays a basically a, a, a cable host, <laughs> a television host. Um, and then, of course, don't have cable back then. This is British television. They still don't have anything like, like our American cable system. But this show, if you go back and watch that one season, you'll be like, holy shit. Not like they stole it, but man, this is the inspiration for a lot of stuff. And I want to play 
a clip of that. It's, it makes very obvious how much what The Daily Show is almost always, the core of The Daily Show is about media criticism as much as it is about politics. So let's play, this is Chris Morris as the, as the host of the show talking to Steve Coogan who plays a, an expert who's brought on by the name of Spartacus Mills. And a few moments ago we received this amateur video footage which seems to show that the Queen and John Major were involved in some kind of drubbing incident. And as a result of that broadcast, the crisis has deepened dramatically. I'm joined by our crisis correspondent, Spartacus Mills. Spartacus, this is huge history happening, it, isn't it? It's bigger than that, Chris. It's large. I mean, if you've got a history book at home, take it out, throw it in the bin. It's worthless. The history books now will have to be rewritten. What will they say? They'll quite simply say, John Major punched the Queen. Everything else will be a footnote. A push for time. Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? <laughs> Spartacus, thank you. I mean, dude, when did you discover Chris Morrison and, and Coogan? When did that come on your radar screen? I, first of all, I love this conversation. This is, this is, it's like one of my favorite things. I'm glad you say that. And I want to, I want to tag a thing that you said that I just read that Chris Morris said, because I think it's often forgotten now about The Daily Show being uh, a critique of media and what is happening in the news. And yeah. Chris Morris talked about the day to day about like making fun of it's 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 the it's not what is happening yes. it's also how it's happening and i think that with that and the brass eye it's 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 just ruthless i found it in the, a random way cuz i found i got obsessed with british comedy i stumble on a bunch of other brilliant things baby cow productions i find uh coogan stuff and fall in love with alan partridge and start to go backwards as to like where partridge came from in the radio shows and the day today and then stumble on the day today and and like this is great and everybody's talking about this guy chris morris he seems to be sort of like the one they're all trying to impress and then i watch the brass eye and the brass eye is this really dark weird beautiful media satire that I kind of got obsessed with. And I'm like, what else has this guy done? It's like, it seems like every few years he does a really important TV show or a great movie. He yeah. then does the movie Four Lions, which is so dark. It's a, it's a comedy thing. about terrorists, yeah. about suicide bombers, and yeah. it's so fucking funny. And you're like, I've been in enough meetings with people in America who are like, well, you can't do stuff about this. You can't, can't, can't. And then you go look, it's like, well, Chris Morris did it a decade ago. And then, and so you see his ideas and his his intellect and the way in which he approached it in so many ways, I just think like it, it birthed people like Armando Iannucci, Coogan, and all these guys who found such a beautiful way of approaching satire with this British sensibility that always I just have really dug and kind of watch in awe. Well, it's it's worth noting for anybody who's really a, a comedy person, Iannucci was a writer on on the day to day. And Iannucci created uh, the uh, Coogan's character, Alan Partridge. Yes. So, yeah, this DNA well, kind of weaves through it all. And then became the guy who made Veep. For anybody right. who doesn't know who the hell we're talking about, when we talk about Armando Iannucci, who's like kind of a genius, um, uh, one of the great geniuses of modern comedy, and Chris Morris is too. It's like I the thing it's weird, man. Like. You know, uh, when Berbiglia and uh, and Alex Edelman were on the show earlier this year, and I asked them for a favor, it's like like Chris Morris's name came up on both of their lists. I lived in Britain in the early '90s, so I sort of I I sort of had run across it uh, uh, because I just out of happenstance. But I am amazed by how influential he is and how much a guy who most people really don't know, Americans they might know uh, a Coogan. Chris Morris is really obscure, but in your world, it's like revered by a lot of people with very different sensibilities about what they're interested in. They're not just all daily show types. I mean, I don't really think of Berbiglia as being like that. He's not really a, he's not a, he doesn't really touch topical political stuff, but, you know, admirers all over the place for how smart that is. I think partly because of what we were saying before, he understands that like, that almost maybe more important than 
reality is what reality, how it's mediated. And in our, when it comes to our politics, the mediating institutions are so fucked up and there's so many of these tropes. And that's what that whole show is about is, you know, not bias, but there are all these tropes of like, you know, you, he does the, a great riff on, you know, when, when, cable, when, the two, when the news gets whipped into a war frenzy and ha- like when they're changing the set to all of a sudden be, it's war coverage here at the day to day. And it's like, oh, that's all about really the way that the media doesn't cover this stuff. It helps make it and it makes it and distorts it and fucks it up in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, he does a, I think it was the most complained about show in BBC history. They do an entire show about pedophilia. Peter Geddon, I believe is what they call it. And it's, and it's, but it's all about the hysteria that gets wrapped up around all of these things and how the media handles it. And we've, we talked about it this week uh, with the circus and what have you. The, I've been obsessed with the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is the Neil Postman book. book yeah. You know, and it, it just sort of talking about how showbiz is this cancer and we are we are addicted to it and it's the the medium is the message that entire idea that like we we need to look at the way in which we are getting our information is teaching us how to think how to interact and in so many ways it's almost a message that gets forgotten because it's just become such a part of our 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 culture and our conversation right now and i look at these shows and that's the initial target it's not just that people are saying these ridiculous things it's like look at this machinery and how it's teaching you how to think Let's attack that machinery. So I want to play, I, I, I know we just heard Coogan, but Coogan figures large in, in your conception of what comedy is. And I just want to play one Coogan thing, one more Coogan thing, because he leaves, after, after he gets kind of introduced to the world, he goes and makes this show. Um, he makes a character who's now basically grown old with him. Oh, it's called, a character called Alan Partridge. You mentioned him. The show was called I'm Alan Partridge. That debuted in November of 1997. And he's been basically coming back to that character again and again over now 25 years, right? This is like the very first scene of the very first episode of the very first season of I'm Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan playing Alan Partridge. And I want you to just talk about this because I think it's so interesting that Coogan has come back to it in all these different formats, audiobooks, and he's played him in various phases of life. He's like, it's an interesting way of kind of, you know, most actors like leave the character behind and Coogan is an actor and a comic. Coogan here is doing a parody of a morning show radio host in sort of middle England. This is uh, him, uh, our introduction, the world's introduction to Alan Partridge. That was Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell, uh, a song in which Joni complains that they paved paradise to put up a parking lot. Um, a measure which actually would have alleviated traffic congestion on the outskirts of Paradise, uh, something which Joni singularly fails to point out, perhaps because it doesn't quite fit in with her blinkered view of the world. Uh, nevertheless, nice song. It's 4.35 a.m. You're listening to Up With The Partridge. Aha! And now it's time for Alan's Facts of the Day. Crab sticks do not actually contain any crab. And from 1993, manufacturers have been legally obliged to label them crab-flavoured sticks. Another one of those, same time tomorrow. Radio Norwich, the best music. Pray silence, please, for the Electric Light Orchestra. (laughs) Pray, Pray silence, please. Um... So, you know, he plays an um, early morning DJ. Again, critiquing a form, a form of media, not political news, but, like, the morning DJ is a critique going on there. He's, uh, I, I, I love, Alan Partridge, it's such a beautiful, so funny character. And I think what is so interesting is, like, so that comes from, the format of that 
uh, season is like a sitcom, and he he is a he's down on his luck uh, media personality who's now a morning DJ who's living in a travel tavern uh, uh, mm-hmm. alongside the road, and it's this hilarious, depressing thing. He does a season before that where it is like a live or it, it's taped like it's live um, talk show, and so it's it's satirizing like talk shows. He gets his own talk show, he blows it. He's a conceited uh, guy in way over his head. And so you watch a talk show that ends with him literally killing a talk show guest. And I think that's part of the brilliance of this character is that, one, it's a very funny character. It's British and dry. He's a, he's a weasel that has all these um, <laughs> blind spots that he doesn't know how to handle. Yeah. But each season kind of evolves with Partridge. So you, where it's gotten to now 20 years later is... This character is doing a, a podcast on a radio show, and it's edited like a podcast on a radio show. He, they just did a thing where he hosts a, a morning show, sort of like a CBS Mornings, and they film it like you would watch like a CBS Mornings show. And, you know, Coogan has grown into this character, and I would yeah. say the, the character's point of view has stayed the same, but he's been able to sort of evolve the types of comedy. The early stuff from 25 years ago feels more sitcom-y. There's more pauses in the way he tells totally. the jokes, and they're written in that way. If you watch one of the web series that he did a year ago, it's very modern. There's no pauses. There's no laugh track. Right. It's filmed in a way that is modern. And so I think like it's you get to watch the style of comedy evolve with this character who is just delivered by Coogan, who's an impeccable comedic actor. The the dialogue is so funny and so like uh, exposing of what this guy truly truly thinks, and I think a lot of comedians are drawn to it because it is just it's also so fully fleshed out to watch a comedic character for twenty years in America you would beat the hell out of that character you'd get like Wayne from Wayne's World and he you just put him in five movies that look the same but this one you watch this person grow and and crumble and come back again. It's great because it's a it's a parody of a certain kind of like Middle England kind of uh, it's a class parody in some ways. These guys from Norwich and 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 people who live here don't in America don't know what that means, but it it transcends its its cultural specificity because he's kind of an asshole and everybody kind of knows a kind of self involved narcissistic, not that talented kind of dick who over time you come to really deeply sympathize with anyway. It's like, and that's one of like, I think Coogan's great tricks is that he takes unlikable characters who are on the surface unlikable and makes them, makes you empathize with them in some way. And he's, I think he's one of his great brilliances. He's a very, very funny guy. If you want to hear somebody, one of the best mimics of, of anybody in the world, go watch the first, uh, the movie version of The Trip uh, with him and Rob Brydon, where he, they get in, in, in they do co- uh, almost comp- competitive mimicry of various famous people. He's Michael Caine is incredible. He's a great, gifted comic. But the depth of him is like there's another thing going on there where he's very, and as he's gotten older, he's gotten more and more depth because he's felt more and more human. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, it's something I return to uh, over and over again. And I think that is something that you find in a lot of British comedians. Culturally, <laughs> America became a world power and kicked uh, England to the curb, which has an entire generation of people who never saw themselves as the best, and therefore their comedy could be darker in the way that they attacked it. And I feel like it was something that almost buffered American comedy from getting too dark because there was still this self-seriousness of our own exceptionalism in a way that the Brits never had and totally. could could like flog themselves harder, faster, and deeper than Americans did. And I think maybe Americans are starting to catch up with those types of characters now, but, but I think that the Brits perfected it. There were two things on your list uh, that, that were not like the others. 
of, of inspirations, heroes in comedy. One of them is Kurt Vonnegut, who is obviously not a, a, a stand-up comic or an actor or something. I understand that one. Vonnegut, one of the great modern comic novelists of our time, although also very dark in a lot of ways. The one I didn't get was another uh, non-comic who you list as a comic hero of yours. That's uh, Mr. Robert Zimmerman of Hibbing, Minnesota. That would be Bob Dylan. And I want to you specifically when I said, well, why is Bob Dylan on this list? You cited this, Bob Dylan, Highway 61. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but uh, next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where do you want this killing done? God said, hold on Highway 61. <laughs> That's First, a good joke. If you said to me, you're like, Highway 61 Revisited, Mm-hmm. is a straight-up joke in that first verse. To explain, I, I think I understand, but I want to hear what the joke is that you hear in there and why that elevates Dylan into your pantheon of, of comic inspirations. Well, and I think, like, Dylan's not just a, a funny songwriter. He's very serious, and he's one of my favorite sure. musicians. And sure. so, but I, th- and I think there's many things about Dylan I find humorous and inspiring. What I think is so funny about that is that's a great, cool song. I listen to that song all the time. It's beautifully written, all these little uh, images all along Highway 61, many metaphors to be found in there. But he starts with a conversation, God and Abraham. And God says, kill me a son. Abe says, man, you must be putting me on. And then it's just a conversation, and it's funny. God says, no. Abe says, what? God says, you could do what you wanted, but next time you see me, you better run. Which you have God threaten Abraham. You don't want to want to you don't you don't want to kill me a son? Next time you see me, you better run. And he takes a comedic pause. But it's a fucking great rock and roll comedic pause. And then Abe comes back and goes, All right, where do you want this killing done? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's like, that's a fucking comic pause. It, it, it's it's a, I see Steve Coogan doing it. Yeah. No, I'm not gonna kill you, son. No, I'm not. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but next time you see me, God, perchance, you better run. Right, he goes from basically like, God, come on, man, I'm not gonna ki- kill you a son. You got to be fucking kidding to like, okay, you know, give me the give me the fucking knife. I'll do- I'll go kill that kid. Um, but Dylan's also like, you know, uh, it is a great great song. I agree with all that. I think it is really and it is funny and it's great that that vernacular speech is he makes the joke and, and Dylan actually. It's the comedy that runs through a lot of Dylan's writing. It's not always there. It's not there even most of the time. But he has, you know, Dylan's got a lot of different, a lot of different colors on his uh, in his palette there that he can paint from. But you you make another point about it, right? Which is that something about the notion of Dylan has done this thing that uh, that a lot of performers, especially in rock music, have not done. Which is they all want to climb up on the pedestal, man. They want to be on the pedestal. You a rock god. That's the whole point of being a rock god is that you want to be on the pedestal or a rap god. You know, you want to worship me. And Dylan has basically throughout his career been like, if you put me up on this pedestal, I am going to jump off it. I am going to subvert it. I'm going to put a stick of dynamite under it. I don't want to sit on that pedestal. I have other shit to do. Yeah, I think even he has a, he has a book coming out. Uh, I think the day this uh, goes live. And they've heard, somebody said, do you know he thanks the people and the hard workers at Dunkin' Donuts for this book? Like, this guy, this guy's, he's making joke, not that the people at Dunkin' Donuts don't work hard, but I think 
you have an audience of people who want Bob Dylan to write this tome and this beautiful book about uh, modern music. And uh, it sounds like he even kicks it off with like undercutting it by being like, I'm going to talk about Dunkin' Donuts right here. And I think that's something, I think what I loved about your question when you texted me about like, what are some comedy heroes you have? And I, there's a lot of people that I find funny and there's people who have like definitely affected how I see the world and who I see as the greats. But I also think it's important to look outside of the world of just straight up comedians. And I think like, the way that Bob Dylan has comported himself in his career is is fascinating and in many ways comic in the sense that I do think he he gets what he gets what he wants and then when people want more of it he he goes and tries something else and I think even seeing him live I've seen him live old and there's a million people who complain about seeing Bob Dylan line and I get it he's hard he changes his songs but one thing he does is he never goes for the the clap he already got. He always wants a new, he always wants new applause. And I think that's inspiring even at, he's, he's pushing 80 plus right now. And, and he goes to a concert where he could get the same laugh lines. There's comedians who tell the same jokes and they could get that same stuff that they've gotten everywhere, just slightly more diminished because it's not 50 years ago. And Bob Dylan wrecks up his songs. He tries something else. He pulls in a Frank Sinatra cover. He defies your expectations from him. And he like tries to build something new with you in that moment. And that to me is like a mind of an improviser. It's a mind of somebody who's like restlessly creative. And I think that's that's always been inspiring to me. All right, we're gonna take one more quick break and then we'll be right back with our final segment with the one and only Jordan Klepper here on Hell on High Water. And do not forget his all new, absolutely fabulous election special, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah Presents, Jordan Klepper fingers the midterms, America unfollows democracy. It is premiering tonight, November 1st on Comedy Central. If you happen to be listening to this after November 1st, there's no doubt you're gonna be able to find this thing somewhere streaming. You gotta see it and we'll talk about it next. All right, we are back with Jordan Klepper here on Hell and High Water. You are in Crimea. Obviously, uh, you have studied this region for years. Yes, that is 100% true. Okay, as you know, the Crimean Peninsula is ethnically Russian. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to remember a peninsula is a landmass surrounded on three sides by water, unlike an island or an isthmus. Now, the Crimean Peninsula is dependent on Russia for most of their natural resources. Actually, they're dependent on the Ukraine for most of their natural resources. Right. Right. Stupid. <laughs> Stupid. I'm sorry. I don't know why I said that. I'm not going to fail you, Dad. John. It's all right, Jordan. It's, all right. it's fine. Okay. Just relax. How are the people feeling? They're scared, John. Uh, real scared. A little sweaty. Because they have ties to both the Ukraine and, and Russia? Is that... Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, if you'd asked them a week ago, would you like to be a part of Russia? They would have been like, yes, Russia's my favorite. I'd love to join Russia. I watch Russia every night. <laughs> but now they don't know what they've gotten themselves into, you know, and they think, maybe I've gotten a little bit in over my head. Look, just say, it's fine. You're doing fine. Stay focused. What have you learned so far today? Uh, well, uh, you have to dial nine to get an outside line. <laughs> Um, lunch is at one, uh, and if I keep my head down here for a couple of years, I've got a real shot at my own sitcom on NBC. Uh, 
Uh, just Paige and Chris McCarthy. Uh, uh, Jordan meant to say CBS. 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 Come on, CBS. Come right, on CBS. CBS. That was your first appearance on The Daily Show. Uh, the, just for history, we should note March 3rd, 2014. Seems unlike only yesterday, but in fact, it was eight years ago. How did you get, I mean, first of all, congratulations for your spot on The Daily Show. <laughs> like, how did that ha- did it happen? How did you end up on The Daily Show? And, and talk about like what that experience has been like going from starting out with working for John, or as you call him, dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is was on your list, I will say for the record also, of comedy heroes. There's Coogan and Python and Bonnegut and Dylan and Chris Morrison and all that. John Stewart was on the list. John, in mm-hmm. case you're listening, uh, you know, Jordan did his duty. He uh, named you. Didn't name did not name Trevor Noah. I didn't know who Trevor was at the time. I didn't know who Trevor was, but I love Trevor. You're on my list for, you're you're on my emergency contact list. Anyway, how how did you get the job? How did you find your way? Like John was one of your heroes. How did you get to work for one of your heroes? And what's been it like over the course of the last eight years in and out of that world? I mean, it's it's been a, a, a wild dream. I think it's, I'd auditioned a handful of times. Those things, those opportunities come up very rarely in the comedy world when somebody leaves and John Oliver had left and I know they were looking for a correspondent for quite some time. They saw a tape of mine that they liked. They asked you to put uh, audition on tape. Um, and so I put an audition on tape. I put an audition on tape with my wife. We were both in the original video and she's a comedian as well. And so we both auditioned separately. They liked both of us, and John brought us in to read, um, and we auditioned, and <laughs> became a stress within the the household. It, like with every amazing call that you get, I think it was also a reminder that like I got that break, and also that was a moment where my wife did not get that break. She got very close to it, but did not. Um, <laughs> and then you show up four days later, and. I walk into an office and Crimea has been invaded and John Stewart has a bunch of ideas and I don't know where Crimea is <laughs> or what Crimea is yeah. and and but I'm I'm writing a a scene with John and with writers that dad portion was the first joke I think I got on that show and I remember making John laugh in the room like part of what's fun about that show is you just yeah. write it you write it fast yeah. and then you you go through it with John minutes before you go out, and I improvised that. He loved it. We threw it in there. It kind of became the crux of it, and and that jo- job was a dream. It's f- for me, somebody who trying to get a, a comedy, a big time comedy job for fifteen years, gotten little things here and there. It kind of hit my sweet spot for an improviser who could kind of go out in the field and do stuff, but also to kind of play this pompous character in the mold of types of characters I'd played and loved before. And it allowed me to kind of fall in love with politics and be there, meet people, get in the chair with somebody. It was something I really loved doing. I also loved to study shit at The Daily Show. I could watch tape for hours of Sam and John Oliver and and kind of learn how they interviewed people, how they would sit in a chair with somebody big, how they would work their questions. And so... I loved it and, and still have loved it, you know, and, and John was very much a mentor and kind to not only give me those opportunities, but to kind of set the bar high as both a boss and as a, a comedian. Yeah, you know, um, it's amazing. I will say uh, that, you know, Hassan was on on this podcast uh, a couple months ago and anybody who's worked for, for John, you know, everybody has these these wonderful things to say about him. Not just obviously he's talented and he has this, had this huge cultural impact and all of that stuff that we all know, but this like everyone locates a, some kind of a kind of humanity like in his work and a and a set of standards and a and a you know a, I don't want to say seriousness, but like like just kind of a he's not a hack, right? 
there's nothing hacky about John. There's not even the best, some of the best people in the business, like, hey, have their hack moments. You don't have a lot of hackish, never had hackishness with John Stewart. And, and I always hear people like you and Hassan and other people who work, who had important breaks to the Daily Show are like, really aware of how, of like what a giant he is uh, and, and how influential he was on their lives. I mean, there are people who are, who are in positions of power in the entertainment industry who are actors in those positions of power. And that's not John Stewart. John Stewart was a creator of a show and a point of view. And he worked his butt off. And I think that was something that, you know, watch, I think he's a funny guy and created all this thing and, was, and brought such intelligence to the meetings and the shows and all of this kind of stuff. But watch the interviews that he conducts. Yeah. Watch the interviews he's doing now. He can sit in that chair. He can cut it up with people and push the people with power in the way they need to be pushed. And also listen to the people with empathy. I, like, it's funny, we talked about Kurt Vonnegut. One of the last interviews Kurt Vonnegut did, John conducted on The Daily Show. And I remember it being such a kind, thoughtful uh, interview. And when John left, it was I, I got him a little gift. And I got him an old Kurt Vonnegut book because I was sort of like, I need to, you know, he was my boss and you're always nervous about those kinds of things. But I was like, I need to give you a totem of something. And what we've talked about here, I'm like, this was somebody who's very important to me. It's like a satirist who I think holds great cultural importance. Vonnegut always had such insights, but also pessimism about the world. He didn't give it a, didn't give it a free ride, but he was an empathetic guy. And I, yeah. I saw a lot of that in John as well. Like he wasn't a cynic, but he was critical. And and I remember feeling so moved by what John had done for that show and for kind of satire and definitely saw him sort of in the worlds of the, the Kurt Vonnegut's. So you, so you then, you know, you get in some ways, I mean, everybody in comedy who does topical or political comedy feasted on, on the Trump years, right? Um, and and you, there was a format that existed that, that Stephen Colbert, uh, Steve Carell, John Oliver, Samantha B, the, the correspondent slot at The Daily Show. Of course, that first hit of yours where you're in, in Crimea means you're actually standing 10 feet away from John Stewart on stage with a Crimea background, green screen behind you, right? But then people started to go out in the field. And, that, and those people I just mentioned all had brilliant moments being out doing field pieces. But you basically became the person doing that, leading the way I do. I'm not the only one. There are others who are doing them too. You're not singular, but... The, the the one who kind of developed the specialty of being the guy who did MAGA rallies and, and sort of became associated with a certain style of doing those, going and talking to Trump people made, I mean, if you look at YouTube and you think about like the top 10, top 20 Jordan Klepper clips, the ones that are in, in the millions of views and sometimes many, many millions of views, they're all MAGA rallies basically. And, and you coming face to face with those people. Everybody knows you for it. And as familiar as it is, and how as great as you are at it, I don't think I'd seen anything as great as one that you did that came out in June. We've talked about this in June of this year, where you went to a Mississippi Trump rally armed with clips from the 1-6 committee and played clips to people outside to kind of really test to show the world just how delusional some of these people are. You, know, you played for people, Bill Barr, basically saying that Trump's theories were all bullshit. And, and, and they're all, all of them are finding various ways to, to say that Barr is wrong or he's saying, he's saying the opposite of what it sounds like he's saying or something. But here's one where you get to the question of Ivanka Trump with someone. You raise Ivanka and you'll hear what, you, what was said. Yeah. Who, who do you trust? Like Trump, Trump's family? I trust, I trust Trump. You trust Ivanka? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think she's very smart and very intelligent. Let me show you, this is what she said. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, 
So I accepted what he said was saying. I don't know. That's not edited in any way. You don't believe she actually said that? Did, did she say it on Twitter? It almost don't even look like her. You don't think that? It could not be. It might be one of those. Well, they got clones out there these days. You think that? You think that was a? It might be a clone, yeah. It might be an Ivanka clone. <laughs> yeah. Hot take, my friend. <laughs> it would be funny if it wasn't so fucked up. I mean, it's like, and that's the most vivid example because like literally someone kind of saying, I'm sitting here staring at Ivanka Trump and I'm a Trump devotee and I see her on the screen saying what she said and people are like, that can't be her. That's not really her. It must be a clone. I mean, dude, we can make a lot of jokes about it, but I really want to hear what your impression was. We've talked about this in other forums, but just talk a little bit about like the journey you've gone on through MAGA world and, and where it's now at, where at the beginning it was a different thing. It was like, oh, they're, they're pissed off. They've been ignored. They have economic anxiety. And now we're in a different place where it's like, that's a clone that can't really be here, even though I can't believe my own eyes. It's, it's, it's melting our brains. It's, it's frightening. I think that was an example of like, let's real time show you information from people that you trust that is going to butt up against the thing that you say you believe and what do you do with that and what we see is we see the spin happening in real time and you know i've i guess i've seen americans get so much better and quicker at the way in which they spin uh, information that isn't amenable to their points of view and it was clunky at first five years ago and i remember post january 6th to be like i wonder how long it's going to take for people to come up with something that uh, alleviates them from any responsibility with this point of view. And I think a month out after that, again, there wasn't a coherent point of view of what happened on January 6th. It was Antifa. It was a good thing. It was a bad, it was all those things, right. but it happened very quickly after January 6th. That was a rally that happened a few months ago. And it was like, I'm watching this happen in real time. And I go to uh, events a week ago and they're talking about how the election coming up is going to be stolen. And I think that's what has gotten so scary right. is we all know people people contort the news and find the bits and pieces that uh, make them feel good about their own points of view. And Donald Trump has done the magic trick of having people identify themselves with him, not with the GOP, not with conservative values, but with Donald Trump. And so a loss of Donald Trump and whoever is MAGA in their world is a loss that they have to experience themselves, which means if you are a sore loser in any kind of way, you can't accept that and you'll create a world around you. And we're at that point where people are good at that. They've been practicing it for years. They're told not to trust information that they don't like. And now they're told to start to craft a future world that they could enter into, that they fear that they, they will not face any critique because their views are right. And we say this at the rally, it's, 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 there are people that, there are people who may not be the majority and can't accept the emotional ramifications of not yeah. having the majority opinion. Well, and then you go out and to, to bring us back as we conclude here to the special that airs tonight on Comedy Central, um, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, uh, gives you Jordan Klepper fingers the midterms America unfollows democracy that's the name of the special something like the presents maybe I missed the presents in there but it's <laughs> the daily show we got to get the daily show's name and we got to get Trevor Noah's name in they're giving you Klepper who's giving you the fingering and the America that's doing the unfollowing that's what it's about but it's that's a Daria America unfollows democracy great <laughs> you know and you you were all over the country you were in in, in Arizona uh, around the same time that we were down there with the circus but the thing I want to play as a last little taste of this which goes directly to the thing you were talking about a second ago and what 
and what's ahead here. And I want to get your 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 kind of overview of of what you learned on the in doing the special and just how scared you are right now. As we're really a week away, we're a week we're a week out. This podcast is going to come out. It's going to be November first. Uh, it's going to be one week to the midterms. And you went to these Mastriano rallies down in the, the guy who's running the election denier, a fierce election denier and participant in January 6th, um, Doug Mastriano. Fortunately, we think he's probably going to lose for a lot of reasons, some of which you see in your special where you go to a Mastriano rally and no one's there. And there's people there saying all their crazy shit about how, you know, Facebook may, is the reason why the rally is so well unattended. And you're like, how did you find out about it? On Facebook, it's like, okay, again. But here's the clip I want to play. Empty rally. No one's there. They're blaming Facebook, even if they found it on Facebook, and you raise the question of what happens if he loses. A very MAGA rally without the heat of Trump was almost relaxing, but there is a danger here. It's not that MAGA supporters are the majority, it's that they refuse to believe they may not be. If Doug loses the election, will you believe it? Doug's not going to lose the election, so there's nothing for me to believe. Yeah, let's say. If the news comes out and it says that he did indeed lose, is it possible that it's not fraud? It has something to do with this turnout? No. There's no way a man who had 75 people here supporting him today could lose this election. We already know they're going to try and steal the election again. It's, a, it's an important election. I give you the floor. Like, I mean, you know, both these places, there's already, Tucker Carlson's already saying, hey, you know, if, 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 if Mastriano and, and, uh, and, and Oz lose, they should challenge that election under any circumstance. It's not impossible. It's not possible, according to Tucker. Same thing. That's what, that's who's talking in that guy's ear that you talked to there. And it's the same deal in Arizona. We could see a repeat of 2020 instead of at the presidential level at a bunch of states all over the country. This this and not and people are now saying it's not if it's like one percentage point. It could be they could lose by four or five points and they're still going to try to invalidate the election. So talk about what you found as you went around to explore this issue and where you found the humor in it and where you found stuff that was less humorous than terrifying. I mean, I see a nation with a lot of sore losers in it. And I think uh, it's, we're in a scary place. I'd, I'd like to, to shine it up and say, you know, but if we, we, we work hard or what have you, I think democracy is in a tough place because you need to, you need to believe in some shared reality and you ha- need to have some, uh, some faith in the basic institutions. And when I went across this country, I'm going to MAGA rallies. There are, trust me, there are many people who are in the middle. There, there, there are a lot of people who don't have these beliefs. But the places that I go to, those cracks feel permanent or they're gosh darn close to feeling permanent. They've given a narrative. People in positions of power who should know better are attaching themselves to this narrative of you do not need to accept loss. In fact, it's a, sense of, it's a sign of weakness if you do. Let's already put that in your, your ear, we're fighting this if we lose. And the faith in the institutions, that's been cracking for, for some time now. And so, so I see these midterms as a very scary thing. I think there, there's going to be a lot of contest things. This is going to be litigated and talked about for quite some time. And I think the Secretary of State races is something we looked at at the spe- uh, special. It's like there are positions here who hold too much power that many people don't even know who's running for these positions. Yeah. But you have parties who are putting a bunch of money into it and they get the right person in there I think we're setting the stage for 2024 being uh, a tumultuous time and and the cracks of something that could really, you know, we jokingly talk about democracy crumbling and these types of things, which feel like hyperbole. But I often think that has to do with a lack of imagination on people's from people's perspective. And and I think the problems that we have in 2024 could begin in seven days.
I mean, people get mad at us at the circus sometimes for like scaring them too much about what's coming in. And I, well, first I always say, hey, it's okay. You know, Klepper's doing this, this election special. He's going to make, he's going to find the, the, the silver lining on the Shit, dark cloud. Don't. It's going to be fine. Comedy Central, it'll be funny. It'll be fun. It'll be uplifting. It'll, you know, he works with Kasich. Kasich believes in the redemption of American democracy, how Republicans are reformable. It'll be fine. And then I hear the Kasich podcast is over. And now I hear that the special is a dark, apocalyptic, terrifying thing. Thanks for that, Jordan. Um, Sorry, we we looked for it. You know what? I mean, I got, I, but I hung out with Oath Keepers. Let me see what's some humor in that. No, they were talking about Civil War. Uh, Adam Kinziger, he actually had some hopeful moments, mm. but also he's been kind of pushed out of his party and yeah. is out of office yeah. soon. Um, mm. I'll get back to you. If I can think of something, I'll get back to you. We brought him on the circus because we thought he would be light comic relief, and it turned out he was like more dark and nihilistic than all of us put together. It was just like, you know, it was just, oh, man, come on, Clapper, make a joke for fuck's sake, please. <laughs> make us feel a little better. Listen, you got to watch it tonight, um, and I, you'll be able to find it um, in, in streamable forms after tonight, I'm certain. Uh, the, the show is, is Jordan Klepper's show. I'm going to say it. Here we go. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents... Jordan Klepper's Fingering the Midterms, America Unfollows Democracy. I did that without even looking at notes. I you think did good. Right. I think you made fingers a verb, but oh. that's okay. Okay. Did I say fingering instead of fingers? You did. Which okay, it, does, I made it, it sexualizes it a bit more. Finger, I, uh, dude, if you, really, it's, you're going to quote me with you, you're going to say that you think I'm, fingers the midterms is actually is, is actually worse if I say fingering the midterms? I do think, I think it is worse because it, it makes it active. It's as if it's going on right now. Fingers, it, at least, it's something of the past we can look back on with, with joy if it said and, and nostalgia. Fingered, if, I, if it said fingered, that would be past tense. But fingers is still, I think you're trying to say points, like fingers like you're picking out a culprit. That's what the, the, the second entendre is supposed to be, right? He was fingered <laughs> yeah. for that crime. He was fingered oh, Oh yes, we, you didn't we, even yes. think of that, did you? No, I totally thought of that. That was okay. that's definitely was the second entendre. We're always yeah. working on multiple entendres here. Yes, there's the listen. Um, it's brilliant. It's, it was brilliant to be with you on the circus. It was brilliant to, uh, to to get to see. I haven't even seen the whole special yet, but this what I've seen has been fantastic. You're doing a vital service. I think you know it's all hands on deck right now for Team Democracy. So the funny guys who also have who also take their job seriously, and the serious guys who try to uh, occasionally tell, say something that's a little bit on the lighter side, we, we're all got to make common cause here because there's not enough of us, and there are a bunch, enough of us who are on. I mean, Team Democracy isn't fated to lose, but it's a little too even right now. Like, the odds are a little, like, I want to be like Yankees murderers row on Team Democracy and be like, you know, the, can anyone here play this game, Mets? Maybe it's a 62 Mets or whatever. I, I want, that's the way I want the odds to be. You know the the, the globe trotters versus the, yeah. the whatever they were the Washington Generals. That's what oh, I yeah, want. Yeah, I, th I think it's Lakers Celtics right now. Yes, it's like it's Magic Lakers and and Bird Celtics. It's like the little mean, too evenly you, matched. It's going to go. I'll seven tell you games. who the Celtics are. We know who the Celtics are. Well, yeah, are you, you're not going to tell me you think Celtics are team democracy, are you? <laughs> no, Don't no, I'm there. saying there's Jesus. a decent chance in oh, my mind the okay. Celtics. Uh, maybe a little bit more of the demos of the anti-democracy crew. Right. I just say, all I'll say is that, like, the odds are, like, this is a series that's going to go seven, and there's going to be overtime. So I I say we all got to stick together, and thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you for coming on the circus. Thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you for being funny. Thank you for letting me play Coogan, who I'm, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with. I'm uh, obsessed honestly, with this Coogan. was so much fun to go down memory lane and to, to hear all these such fun 
funny, beautiful things. And I had a blast on the circus. So thanks for thanks for the chat and the the week with all you you maniacs. I'm gonna go watch the trip again for the nineteenth time right now. So um, I'll, I'll see I'll see you later. It's beautiful. It's funny. It does all those things. Yeah, I'll see you and those guys listening though. to Joy Division in the Range Rover while they drive around the English countryside. I just like I just want. That's why I'm gonna. If if the things go bad in America, Jordan, you and I, we can get a big get a big a really big SUV with a badass uh, stereo system. That Hunter Thompson menu. And uh, just and, and play Joy Division, really dark, dark, dark apocalyptic music as we drive around like north, the north of England looking for all of your comedy heroes there. This is, I love this. This is Apocalyptic Circus season 15. It'll be in search of Chris Morris. That's what we'll be doing. We're going to find you, Chris. We're coming Democracy's for you. Democracy's dead. Home. We can go, let's find a new cause, the search for Chris Morris. All right, Jordan, thank you, man. Helmet, thank you. Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jordan Klepper. And remember to check out his special, The Daily Show, with Trevor Noah Presents, Jordan Klepper Fingers the Midterms, America Unfollows Democracy, which premieres tonight, November 1st, on Comedy Central. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Amr Sultan produced and engineered this episode. Zoya Soroy is our researcher and the one and only, the truth, the light, the heat, the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. 